Welcome to the Grace at a Glance podcast from Grace Church of Linnets and Grace Creative. We are a Jesus church where the gospel is central, where we love Jesus, build people, and lead revival. Thanks for joining us. Church, it's excellent to be here with you this morning. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be spending the majority of our time in that book of the Bible. And just to warn you, Luke chapter 1 is one of the longest chapters in all of the Bible. It's like 79 or 80 verses. We're not going to go line by line, but we will be looking at two very specific stories in that text. You're definitely going to want to have that open and available to you. Every now and again when you read scripture, there are certain verses that really pop out to you. Things that uh, the Holy Spirit has set aside in his time for your life so that when you read it, it convicts you or ministers to your soul. And this happened to me not too long ago, a couple of weeks back, when I was reading in James chapter 5, specifically verse 16. And it talks about the mind of a person. And here's what it says. The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. Now, recently, I've been in contact with a lot of people in the world, hanging out with different friends around uh, my area and in my life, and I've also been on Facebook and social media a lot, and I'm seeing what all my friends are posting and talking about these days, and I just felt this deep conviction that there's a lot of people in my life who are just like this wave. They're just being tossed around, directionless, by the winds of the world. Almost as if, if there's a good idea and it pushes them this way, and then something else comes and it pushes them that way, and they have no sense of anchor, no sense of steadiness in their life. And it began to create a little bit of burden in me. And I watched my friends, and I even watched people in the church go through the same process, where they don't actually have a direction for life And they start asking other people, hey, what was some advice, what's some wisdom you could give me about a direction I should head or somewhere I should go or or what I should pursue? And I often hear the same repeated strategies from the world and the people around me, which is, oh, you know what? Just look inside yourself, you'll find the answer. Or, hey, you know, I know that you're having a hard time right now, but trust me, you're enough and that's all you'll ever need. You just need you, you'll be fine. Uh, Or things like, you know, follow your heart. Or, you know what? Cast all those positive vibes out into the universe. Eventually, they're going to return back to you. Just stay on course. Believe in yourself. I hear those messages a lot. And I watch people follow those messages. Like, okay, that must be the goal. If I do that, then something is going to be good in my life. Something's going to come back and give me meaning and give me purpose. And here is what I've noticed, is that a lot of people uh, kind of engage in that sort of mentality they give themselves everything they want, or they, they pursue everything they want, all their passions, all their interests, all their ideas. They seek community in all kinds of places. They do all these things for themselves in their own power. And here's what happens. Generally, there's some kind of short-term success. They actually do experience some sense of community or some sense of wealth uh, you know, growth or some sense of purpose in their life. And once they've achieved it, and you really start to talk to them, it's like, well, what's next? Because the thing that they were looking for inside of themselves led them to a place where they did experience it for a little bit, but it wasn't 
totally satisfying. And if the thing that I always wanted I finally got it wasn't satisfying, then well, what else is it? There must be some other purpose, some other meaning for my life. You know, what am I doing here? What am I pursuing? And ultimately, they often comes back and say, well, this thing was, was a little bit meaningless. And now, this last week, uh, maybe it was a week ago, I can't remember, it was two weeks ago or this last week. Anyway, a new TV series was just released. Uh, it's called Stranger Things, season four. And I've been watching this show for the last couple of years, as I'm sure many of you have been watching the show for the last couple of years. And if you have not yet started, you don't need to start. I'm not advocating for the show. But when I, went, when I got to the last episode, and I'll try not to give any spoilers of what happened, there was this incredible dialogue where the main bad guy begins to spew exactly what my own thoughts were to the protagonist of the show. And so I went back and I rewatched the episode. I typed out what this guy said to the protagonist. And I want to read it for you because when I heard these words, it echoed what I've been observing about the world around me through social media and through my friend sets and even people in the church. And here is what he said in his monologue. He said, people wake up, they eat, they sleep, they reproduce and die. Everyone is just waiting, waiting for it all to be over, convincing themselves of purpose, all while performing a silly, terrible play day after day. And when I heard him say that, I was like, wow, that's, that's good insight. It's true. That's actual truth that the bad guy said. Now, because it's a TV show and you can't end there, it switches immediately over to the protagonist, and her name is Eleven, if you haven't watched the show. And what happens is she goes to this flashback sequence in her life, and it flashes back to when she first met her friends, and when she first got some family, and when she first uh, discovered that her powers could be used for good and, and not just for bad, and she discovers all these things about herself. And you know what happened? She looked deep inside herself, and she found out that she was enough that she had the power to overcome this bad guy. And so then she does, she overcomes the bad guy, and the, and, the, and the show goes on. And what I noticed is that this show was using a bad guy to tell us the truth, and then using a good person to feed us the lie. It goes back through that cycle. And here's what is interesting, is this continued to perpetuate... <laughs> Well, if you look inside yourself to find yourself the power and the answer, you begin to realize there's really, there's really just not much deep within us that can actually solve all of our problems or all the crises or give us all the meaning and purpose we've been looking for. And sooner or later, everybody is going to face that terrible reality, that what they have is not good enough. This is what King Solomon did. If you, understand, if you have ever read the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, it's a book about a man who decided to give himself everything every passion he ever wanted, every knowledgeable experience he could ever have. This guy is the epitome of someone who lived it all and did it all. There were great successes and great self-pleasure and incredible indulgence. This man did all of it for the sake of one thing, learning what was good about the world. And at the end of all of that, here's what he says in the book of Ecclesiastes. When I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. This is a chasing of the wind. Now what happens is a lot of people get to that point and it leads them to anxiety or depression uh, and other issues. But what happens for the majority of people is they double down on the lie. They say, well, it must be something else then. If I did it all and it didn't satisfy, there must be something else out there. I'll just continue on in my journey willy-nilly looking for whatever I can to find to satisfy that need in my life. You know, there's a popular atheist, uh, his name is Fabian Chinook, 
And Fabian was asked this question. And the question it was a simple question that all of us ask. What is the meaning of life? It's a good question. And when he was asked the question, it sent him on a journey where he then wrote a book called The Atheist Bible. You can look at it. It's free online if you'd like to read, if you'd like to read it. Uh, and his conclusion is this. Since there is no creator above you, and you are subservient to no one except for yourself, then the only person that can give meaning to your life is you. It's a good, solid reasoning. And since the only, reason that, the only thing that gives meaning to your life is you, here then, this is a big conclusion to the book, are the things in which you may be able to find meaning. And I'm going to read for you this list. Try to be a nice person. That's number one. It doesn't really hit home, does it? If there's no meaning to life, and you have to assign your own meaning, well then, here are some reasons that you could have meaning to life. Try to be a nice person. Reason number two, avoid eating fat and read a good book. Find the love of your life. This is reason number three. Find the love of your life. Once you found him or her, you will stop worrying about the meaning of life. And anyone who's been in a relationship at all knows that that's a lie. It just rings hollow. I like this one. It's kind of good. Bring something into the world that wasn't in the world before. It doesn't matter if it's a table or a film or gardening. Everyone should create. You should do something. And then here's what goes wrong. Then sit back, relax, and say, I did that. Wow. What's the meaning of life? Complete self-service to oneself. That's all he has to offer to any of you or to any of us in this whole thing. He goes, the list goes on and on and on. I'm going to lead, uh, read the final one. The final thing he says that it should be the meaning of life for those who have no God structure is this. Sleek, seek pleasure and avoid pain. That's the meaning. There it is. The Atheist Bible. You can pick it up online. It's free. Now, if you choose to orient yourself, you orient your life, around yourself that's all you got that's it right there and what you will find is as you pursue these things you're going to realize that none of those things will satisfy the deep desires and needs of your soul and functionally here's what i believe is true if people live this way functionally they actually make and orient their whole life around these things you are functionally living as an atheist you are living as if there is no God or there is no creator or there is no source outside yourself that provides meaning to the world around you because you're choosing to ascribe meaning for yourself in any possible avenue that you can. And so you're living an atheistic lifestyle even if you functionally claim some sort of deity or faith. And that doesn't matter what religion you are. And I think we would all agree that as we look at uh, our culture that we live in and predominant cultures around the world, we're predominantly living in an atheistic society whether you claim that belief system or not, because all of a sudden, if there is no God, you are your own God, and if you are your own God, then you're the only one that matters, and you're the one who gives meaning to your life. And what we find is, if we're the only things that give meaning to our life, we ultimately have no meaning. And this is why the gospel is so fundamentally important for this day and age. This is what makes the Christian message different than anything else you're going to hear, because the Christian message starts with the truth that you're not enough, that the world isn't enough, and that nothing you do or things you can achieve are ever going to satisfy your soul. That's where the gospel starts. But it doesn't leave you there. It does say then, if you orient your whole life 
around one man, Jesus, around one God, the Lord. If you give your whole life over to him, not only are you going to find infinite purpose and infinite meaning, but you will find infinite satisfaction to your soul. This is the gospel. You know, I think a lot of us believe the gospel, or what we believe to be the gospel, is simply that Jesus loves you, Jesus died on the cross for you so that your sins could be forgiven, and if you believe that, then your sins are wiped away and you get to go to heaven. And that is certainly a part of the gospel. But I would, in my observations in the last hundred years or so, as the North American church has made that the primary message, we missed out on what the gospel really is. And Jesus tells us what the gospel really is in John 10.10. He says that I have come to give you life and life to the full. That's life that starts today, that is just not only just a physical life, but it's eternal life, but it's a life filled with meaning, purpose, and satisfaction. A life that you can't find inside of yourself, I've come to give you. That's the fullness of the gospel. And friends, if we only tell people you need to turn or burn, you've missed out on the best part of what it means to actually be a follower of Jesus, which is to have peace, completeness, satisfaction, purpose, and meaning, both today and for eternity. And I have not met a single person. And if you spend time with young people, and if you're an older person, I really recommend you spend time with younger people and they're like early 20s, late teens. They're trying to figure out why they're here what their purpose in the world is. And they're going to look all over for it. And if you've been walking with Jesus and you have purpose and a sense of contentment and peace, you have the answer. And you can bring it to them in a way that nobody else possibly can. And so we're going to take a look at this series, My Lord, My God, because it's important for all of us to understand that the gospel message is not simply about salvation. That's where it starts. It's about submission of all of our life over to Jesus so that we can find purpose and meaning to its fullest extent here this side of eternity. And we're going to look, take a look at lordship, the lordship of Christ specifically, in order to do that. So if you have your Bible, Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to be for the next 15, 20 minutes. And uh, we're going to jump right into Luke chapter 1, looking at verses 16 and 17. And we're going to look at these two stories. The story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and their desire to have a baby. And then we're going to look at the story of Mary and her desire to not have a baby. And then we're going to look at how God was working between both stories to do three very specific things as it pertains to us understanding something about Jesus. We're going to understand first that Jesus is the Lord before he was ever born. We're then going to look and we're going to see that Jesus is the Lord because of his birth. And then we're going to look at the fact that Jesus is Lord ultimately because he has the power, the right, and the ability to be our Lord. So let's take a look at story number one. The story of Elizabeth and Zechariah, Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Let me give you some context about Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest. Uh, he was being called up for religious service at the start of this passage. And he was going to go into the holy chambers before God and pray for the nation of Israel. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It's not something he would have done multiple times. This is his one and only shot. So it's a big deal. It's a really big deal. And all of the nation of Israel, or at least those who were in Jerusalem at the time, were behind or outside of the temple, and they were praying at the same time, and he was in there to offer incense and prayers on behalf of the nation of Israel. Really powerful moment. Now, as you learn in the story, Zechariah and Elizabeth were unable to conceive and have children. And if you've had that struggle in your life, then you know what it can be like to desperately, 
want to have children. And this, these family, they're a wonderful family, and they were a righteous family, and they were a good family, and they served the Lord. They, they really wanted a baby, and they just didn't have it. Now, Zechariah had his chance to go before the Lord in the Holy of Holies. Not the Holy of Holies, but the Holy Room. And while he was there, you can imagine. I mean, you can just put yourself in that position. Finally, you have this chance to be before God and offer incense and prayers on behalf of the nation. But you know what else you're going to pray for? You're going to pray for your own needs, because that's what we do. We pray for ourselves and for others. And you can just see the fact that you'd probably be there saying, Lord, we just want to have a child. Would you gift us with a child? When all of a sudden, the angel Gabriel shows up. And that's where we find ourselves in Luke 16 and 17. Gabriel shows up and makes a pronouncement to Zechariah. Zechariah, the Lord has heard your prayers, and you will have a son, and he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or any other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The angel shows up to John or to Zechariah and says, Zechariah, your son John is going to be a forerunner. He is going to go before the Lord and in telling the people to prepare your hearts for the Lord is coming. I think many of you are probably familiar with the story of Paul Revere, the midnight ride. He's riding through and said, the British are coming, the British are coming. And everybody comes out to fight the British. That's the myth. The real story is a little bit different. But in this story, John is that person. He's the one who's going to go into the wilderness shouting for everybody here that the Lord is on his way. He is the forerunner. Now, if you look in uh, those particular verses, 16 through 17, depending on the version that you have, the one that I have uses the the word Lord three times. Yours may use the word Lord two times. Uh, In mine, it says use the word Lord three times. And each time, uh, it's a very specific word. Now, a lot of us forget that the Bible as we have it was not written in English. Okay, it was written in uh, several different languages. This particular book, Luke, was written by a very well-educated man named Luke, and he used ancient Koine Greek, which is a language that you can study to learn, but nobody speaks it anymore. Uh, and as you look into the, the word, what you find is there is the word kairos, which is literally translated Lord. And you might understand the word Lord as a feudal Lord, somebody who has like power and dominion over a region that you pay taxes to and everything else. That is the wrong definition that you have in your mind when you read the word Lord, or you might even be saying it's God. The right definition, the word kairos in this passage, and specifically, is talking about God the Father. The words are the kairos theos, right next to each other. And so that's God the Father, and the actual meaning in the original language is the one with supreme authority. That's what this means. So the kairon, the kairos theos, the one with supreme authority authority is the one that is being talked about here in this particular passage. And that's very important to understand what's being said about that person. God the Father, the one with supreme authority, your son John will be a forerunner for him on the earth to prepare the people that he is coming. Now, if the story of Luke chapter 1 ended there, and there went on to be great revival in Israel, without a doubt, John the Baptist would be likened to Moses or Abraham, or some other significant father or judge or prophet in the nation of Israel. So Luke is very intentional to then juxtapose the story of John, who's clearly now a prophet of God on high, the one who has supreme authority, with the story of Jesus' conception with Mary. 
And so we're going to switch over to Mary. Here's the story of Mary. Gabriel, the same angel who appeared to Zechariah and told Zechariah that he was going to have a son named John, appears to Mary. Here's what he says to Mary, uh, starting in verses 1, 35, and 36, and 37. The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive in her sixth is already in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Now, as soon as Mary hears this, Mary performs an ancient pregnancy test. The angel said that her barren cousin would be with child, and it is her sixth month. The angel said that now I am going to be with child. So the only way to know if I'm actually with child is to travel to go see my cousin Elizabeth. And I'm going to go see Elizabeth, and when she gets there and she sees Elizabeth, something really wonderful happens. The baby that's inside Elizabeth's belly, John, starts jumping for joy, doing somersaults, pushing on mom's belly like an alien Han Solo in Carbon Night. Like, that's, that's the picture here, okay? And he's doing all kinds of movement. And when the mother feels the baby moving around inside of her belly because all of a sudden the baby is in the presence of Mary, here's what Elizabeth says to Mary. Blessed are you among women, Mary. This is verse 42, 43. And blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? The word Lord here is the same word, the kairos theos, the one in supreme authority. As soon as the baby starts to jump in Elizabeth's belly, Elizabeth recalls the prophecy spoken over her son John, that John would be the forerunner to declare that the Lord was coming. And John, even at six months old, though he had no words, starts jumping around to indicate to his mom that you are in the presence of the Most High God. That the one who is supreme in authority that impregnated, me, uh, that allowed you to womb to open and for you to conceive me, mom, but I mean, pay attention, is right here, three feet from you, inside the body of Mary. And what does Elizabeth declare? Elizabeth is the first person in all of Scripture to recognize that the unborn child inside the womb of Mary is God himself, the Lord Supreme. And as soon as she says that, Mary gets a confirmation in her pregnancy test. I guess I really am pregnant, and I guess I really am carrying the Son of God. Mind blown. <laughs> this is a powerful juxtaposition of Scripture. It proves to any first century reader who was bothering to understand the story of Jesus that John was not just some normal prophet who would prepare the way for the Lord, but John was the one who was going to actually prepare the way for the incarnate God. You see, people in the first century were very familiar with God opening up the womb of barren women. Just look at the book of Genesis. You'll see it happens three different times. Go, out, go throughout Scripture, the prophet Samuel, his mother could not bear children. She prays, then she's able to, to conceive after that. The mother of Elisha, the mother of Samson, all women who were barren that prayed and pleaded with God, and then God opened up their womb. And culturally, when that happened, the baby was dedicated over to God for his service. They became a prophet, or they became a priest, or something specific and intentional to lead the nation of Israel. 
Now, Elizabeth was certain that that would be true about her son. And everybody in the community, because they knew the story, would have been certain that would have been true about John. John's going to be a prophet or priest or somebody who leads the nation of Israel very intentionally and very specifically. In this instance, we're told to prepare the people to receive God. But nobody, and I mean nobody, has ever heard the story, nor would they want to hear the story, of a young unwed woman whose womb is opened up, who miraculously conceives a child. That is culturally taboo and different and strange and just quite frankly not okay. But it happened. And so if God did this in the past and people became prophets and priests, and now God's doing this new thing where there was no man involved but the power of his Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary then what kind of man is this? What kind of prophet or priest is this going to be for the nation of Israel? Or what kind of king could this be for the nation of Israel? It raises the question in the heart of every person in the first century who's hearing about this, who understands the context of Israel. They want to know, this guy's different. What's so different about him? And as soon as Mary hears this news, she jumps into song. In the first sentence of her song goes like this my soul glorifies the lord and my spirit rejoices in god my savior and if you take that sentence my soul glorifies the lord and my spirit rejoices in god my savior and you take that as the primary lens through which you read the rest of the book of luke you're going to see that this man jesus truly is god the savior a gift given to us by the one on high so that we might find salvation in a way we never could before. So this idea of lordship, that Jesus was lord before he was born, is fundamentally important to everybody in the first century. I don't think many of us today hear too much about the lordship of Christ, although we sing about his lordship, we sing about his kingship, we think about those things. But to understand how profound this is, you've got to understand, if I'm a Jewish person, and I say that Jesus is lord, and I ascribe to him divinity, I've now become an idolater in the eyes of the rest of the Jewish nation. Because if you are a Jewish person, you grew up saying the Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You said that all the time. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay? So for then for you to say that this man before you is also God, it means that now God is two, which is reasonable to assume that God went from one to two. Now if God is two, or if you begin worshiping, but God can't be two, God can only be one. So if you're worshiping Jesus and you replace him over God the Father, you are an idolater. And what Luke is trying to help you understand is that you are not an idolater. You're not worshiping somebody who's not God the Father. He's 100% God the Father. He's 100% man. And that eased the burden and helped the heart of the Jewish people to recognize their Messiah, which was Christ. All right, second aspect. Jesus is not only Lord before he was born, but he's Lord by his birth. Let's go back to Luke chapter 1. We're looking at verses 31, 32, and 33. This is the angel Gabriel speaking again to Mary. You will conceive and you'll give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, the Lord God, and he will give him the throne of his father, David. Now, how in the world is Jesus, who is the Son of God, supposed to inherit the throne of David, who is a real person, as his own father. What we're implying here is that Jesus is a man descendant of David himself. In his flesh, he's a descendant of David himself. And if you know anything about inheritance, especially in the Old Testament, New Testament, inheritance came down from father to son, father to son, father to son. If 
Jesus was not the biological son of Joseph. There's no possible way that Jesus could have the inheritance that's promised here, that he would sit on the throne of his father, David. Uh, we're going to talk about how that's possible. You know, my mother-in-law recently got into Ancestry.com. And if you know much about Ancestry, you kind of track your lineage all the way back, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, we found something very interesting on the bull side of the family, is that we are descendants of Llewellyn Grudoff of Welsh, of Wales, sorry, Wales. If you don't know who he is, he's famously called Llewellyn the Last, because he's the last king of Wales. But let's just say the United Kingdom and the Queen decided that they were going to make reparations for all the land they stole from people throughout history. Did you know that direct line from Llewellyn the Last to Tim Bull, that if there was reparations made, you would have King Tim Bull of Wales. That's the direct line over 800 years, right to him. Skips me because I'm the second son, which is a real bummer. But it goes right from there to there. Kind of a fun and fascinating piece of genealogical history on the Bull clan. We didn't even know that we were Welsh until that came up. But look at that. The line goes all the way down just like that. We can prove it if there's ever reparations to be made. Queen, listening. Um, I doubt it will ever happen. In the same way, if you look at Matthew chapter 1, you have a genealogy. You see the genealogy of Joseph himself. It goes all the way from Adam all the way to Joseph. And you've got 40 plus generations. But then you've got the generations between David and Joseph. Boom, boom, boom. 14 generations between David and Joseph. About 800 years. The same amount of time as when we lost the kingdom of Wales to the United Kingdom. Right? 800 years goes by. Joseph is a carpenter. He's clearly not the king of Jerusalem at that point in time. Though he has every right and claim to be the king of Jerusalem should that time ever come to pass. Now, when Joseph decided to keep Mary as his wife, he adopted Jesus as his son. And here's why this matters. Because in feudal systems, adoption and, you know, second children and everything, that didn't really matter so much in that, that area that you might be familiar with. But in the ancient world, especially in the first and uh, pre-first century, first century, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, who were the main religious leaders of the day, they interpreted Leviticus and Deuteronomy into a smaller text called the Mishnah. The Mishnah had 613 laws that you would order your life around based on these two primary books of Scripture. And in the Mishnah, there's an interpretation about adoption. And here's what it says about adoption. We're going to get to it. It says, When you raise a child in your home who is not your own, a stepchild, an orphan, or other, that child is ascribed to the father as though he had begotten him. So Jesus is the rightful king of Israel because he is the direct adopted son of Joseph. And according to scripture, that means that it's as if Joseph had begotten him. Everything that Joseph was entitled to, Jesus is now entitled to have as well. So the lineage of Jesus shows us that he's the rightful king of Israel. Now here's what's really important. There was a promise made to David 14 generations earlier. You can read it in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, 11-14. I'm going to read it for you now. God makes a prom this promise to David. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, and I raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So if you are reading this as a first century Jewish person, and you're understanding that we now have 
this Chiron Theos, God, the supreme authority in the person of this human, and then you see his lineage, that he's the rightful heir of the kingdom of Israel, we all of a sudden realize that this is the fulfillment of God's promise to David in 1 Chronicles 17, 11 through 14. This man, Jesus, is not just a prophet, not just a priest, not just a king, as his, Luke 1 could affirm all of those things. He's the Messiah. He's the one promised to redeem and to save Israel, which makes sense then that John would be the one who would be blessed to go before everybody and say, prepare your hearts to receive the Lord. So we have Jesus' divine lordship in Luke 1. We have Jesus' human lordship in Luke 1. And all that's well and good, uh, except for there's one problem, and the problem is the human heart. You see, Jesus might have the right to be lord over the universe. He may have the right to be lord over Jerusalem. But you might be thinking, does he have the right to be lord over me? What gives him that authority? What gives him that power? Why should I orient my life around this man? And what I want you to do is see that you should, because Jesus is Lord by his power. Let's look at Luke chapter 1, 76 through 79. Jesus is Lord by his power. We're going to look at Zechariah's prophecy over his son John, because he prophesies over his son John. And here's what he says about his son John. Uh, Because John is a unique name. I'm going to start with John's name. Zechariah was told to name his son John, so he named his son John. If you read the story in verses 70 through 76, the people are very confused as to why he would name his son John. Because traditionally, you would name your son or your daughter based on a family name. So the people wanted Zechariah to name his son Zechariah, like Zechariah Jr. or Zechariah II or whatever. And he's like, nope. All of a sudden, his mouth opens up and he shouts out the word John. And so the baby is named John. And here's what that means. The name John means graced by God. That's what that means. John means graced by God. In other words, Zechariah was telling everybody around him that Elizabeth and I, while we were good people, we didn't deserve this baby. We didn't earn this baby. We didn't do enough things that God loved us enough to open up Elizabeth's womb at all and give us a child. No, in fact, what it is, it's an admittance. It's an admittance that only by God's grace, because he chose to do it, did he give us this son. And so this is John. We are graced by God to have this baby boy, and that's what his name means, that by God's grace we have a child. And then here's what Zechariah prophesies over his son, Luke 76 and 79. He says, And you, my child, John, you will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of of our God. That's it. John will go forth, tell people about who the Lord is, how you can get salvation, how the kingdom is going to come, not for anything that they did or earned or or wanted, but because of the tender mercy of God's grace. That he loves you enough, that he loves people enough to send somebody to you, like John, or like a pastor, or like a friend, or somebody, to share with you that you are loved, and even though you're not enough, there's one who is enough. His name is Jesus. He's the son of the God Most High. He is God Most High, and he loves you enough, and he can give you everything you've ever wanted. He can forgive you for all the wrong you've ever done, and he can give you meaning. He can give you purpose. He can anchor you in a world that's trying to push you from left to right and tear you apart. He can give you life and life to the full, and then Jesus proves it. 
Here's how he proves it. He most acutely proves it through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. In just a moment, we're going to take communion. And I'm going to ask the ushers to go ahead and get up and start passing out the communion cups because I'm going to preach for about five more minutes while they're passing out these cups. And I'm going to explain to you why Jesus has the power to do what he said he's going to do. And so I think there's a communion cup coming. Here we go. Thank you. See, Jesus has the ability to be Lord of your life. Because Jesus, who is God before he was born, Jesus who has the right to be a king on earth because of his lineage and his birth, he most acutely showed his power the day that he was crucified on a cross. On that day, an innocent man gave up his life to pay for the sins of the guilty people of the world, which is you and which is me. And when he did that, that's a very kind thing for him to do. But he did something more. Through the power, his own power, the power of his own spirit, he raised himself from the dead three days later. And ushers, you can start passing that out whenever you want. He raised himself from the dead three days later. And in bringing himself back from death to life, he proved that he had more power than any other king who's ever lived on the face of the earth, than any other prophet who's ever walked on the earth, or any other priest or any other religion or anything that's ever claimed to be on the earth. I don't know your familiarity with other religions at all, but Muhammad's still dead. Buddha's still dead. Other practices that are all about yourself end up to be meaningless and purposeless because they're dead, but not Jesus. Jesus is alive. And by his own power, he rose himself from the dead so that all who believe in him might have life and life to the full. Friends, I promise you, if you orient your life around the Lordship of Christ, where you make him your master, your commander, the one that you submit all of your wants, wills, and desires to, that very elusive thing you want, peace on earth, peace for your soul, a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, all of that will be given to you, and so much more. Daily, we must choose for Jesus to be our Lord, because the flesh is very strong. And oftentimes we decide that we're not going to submit to Christ. We're going to do our own thing. And let me tell you something. If you've done your own thing, you know where it leads. Because you found that end of the rope time and time again. But the Lordship of Christ will give you all that you want more. Life and life to the full. And my hope is that as we go through this series, you're going to move closer and closer towards daily being able to have Jesus as your Lord. He's always your Savior. That's locked in. That's done. If you believe in Him, you're saved. You're good. But if you want the most from now and for eternity, he has to be Lord. That's what communion does for us. It gives us a chance to recognize his power to be Lord. Because he died, but he lives. And that's his power. So the night that Jesus was crucified, he took bread and he gave it to his disciples. And it's the bottom of the second cup. And he passed it out to them. And he said, when you're together, this is symbolic of my body. My body in a few short hours is going to be broken for you so that you might have life. Let's eat this body and remember his work. Then he took wine. He put it in a cup and he passed it around. He said, this wine represents my blood because only blood can remove sin. 
And on this day, I pour out my blood for the forgiveness, the removal of sin. So when you gather together, my body was broken and my blood was spilled for you. So when you drink the cup, remember the spilled blood that washes away your sin. Only Jesus can do the things that he does for you. Only Jesus can give meaning and purpose to your life. Only Jesus can make you right with God the Father. And only Jesus should be your Lord. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for these people who have come to hear the word. But Lord, more importantly, I would ask this, that they would hear the voice of their Lord and orient their souls around you. And I said in Jesus' name. Hosting for this podcast has been brought to you by Anchor from Spotify. Our intro and outro song is Creative Mind by Ben Sound. From all of us here at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.